The first reading is in the book of Habakkuk, uh, chapter 2, and we'll start at verse 2. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets, so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest, because he is as greedy as the grave and, like death, is never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your creditors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their prey, because you have plundered many nations. The peoples who are left will plunder you, for you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out, and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk, so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming round to you, and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and your destruction of animals will terrify you. For you have shed human blood, and you have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman? Or an image that teaches lies. For the one who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life. Or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. The reading will continue in Revelation chapter 8, and we'll begin at verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel, who had a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, 
rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. This is God's word. Morning, everyone. My name is Pete. I'm uh, an assistant minister here. It'd be lovely to, to meet you if I haven't already. Um, perhaps you're planning on the picnic, or you're not planning on it, but you, you could just turn up and we can enjoy one of the Queen's best parks together. Let's pray as we start. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning uh, praying for a blessing from your word. I pray that whether we're really very familiar with the Bible or not at all, you would please have something for us here. In Jesus' name, amen. Imagine that you are a Middle Eastern Christian and you are kneeling on a beach about to be executed by a soldier from so-called Islamic State. And they're poised and ready to strike. And they say to you, have you got anything to say? Before I kill you, have you got anything to say? I mean, what can you say? I don't know what I'd say. Change the scenario slightly. Perhaps you're one of the schoolgirls, those 200 kidnapped in Nigeria. And um, you are being forced to marry one of your captors. They've taken you away by force from your family. Now they're forcing you to get married. You're standing in front of an imam with this strange man who's getting married to you. What what can you say there? You open your mouth. You're supposed to say some vows. You have an opportunity to say something. What can you say to an oppressor like that? Let's change it again, perhaps to something a bit closer to home that might feel a bit more normal. What if you live in London? You're facing the more mundane but painful injustices of daily life. You have a landlord who's mercilessly squeezing every penny they can out from you through the deposit or the rent or some other such means. Maybe you've got a, a colleague who is building their career by treading on other people and, and trampling them down and they don't care about what they're doing. Maybe there's just injustice in your life that way. What can you say in an office where that kind of person is in the ascendancy? Maybe you're not suffering injustice at all right now. But does your heart not go out to people like that who are? When you, when you hear about the Nigerian schoolgirls, do you not think, what, what can I say on your behalf? Maybe your colleague in the office is the one suffering. You say, what can, I do for, what can I do for you? What can I possibly say into this situation which doesn't just feel like whistling into the wind? You know, my words will do no use here. We've been studying the book of Habakkuk in um, our August services in the morning. And Habakkuk's a book about injustice. Page 941, if you've lost it. We'll get to Revelation at the end. Page 941. Jonah, Micah, Nakam, Habakkuk. I've lost it. Just helps to know that song from when you were a kid, doesn't it? Okay, 941. Habakkuk, uh, it was a lament. It was written about 600 BC. It comes in three cycles, as we've been seeing. So um, Habakkuk talks to God. God talks back. Habakkuk talks to God. God talks back. And then Habakkuk gets a song. We've been seeing as well that it, it builds up to chapter 3, verse 18. Chapter 3, verse 18, where Habakkuk is able to say, out of having been in the depths of despair, he's able to get to this place where he says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. So we've been seeing that there's a trajectory here that he, out of the the pits of anguish, he gets to adoration at the end. 
And here we're in our, our third sermon, second cycle of Habakkuk talking to God. And um, well, look, I, it, I hope this helps. Could we have the, the little outline up, Jal? Thanks. First week we were here, we saw chapter 1, 1 to 11. Habakkuk is demanding, justice now, please God. Then last week, we began to saw, uh, Habakkuk says, Babylonians? Wow. Sorry, I know that's a bit cheesy. I was just trying to make it memorable. Um, God says, I'm going to raise up the Babylonians in response to your complaint about injustice. And Habakkuk is reeling and thinking, the, the most brutal nation on earth? Wow. I mean, in that small word, wow, is contained all the pain and horror of seeing people invade your land and people abused and dragged away into exile. So, I mean, wow has to carry all that freight. But that's what Habakkuk's been struggling with. Justice now, Babylonians, wow. And then we began to see last week in God's response, in the second cycle, that God says, wait, wait, live by faith. And then today we're going to see this, this last word, woe. And we'll see that in that little word is contained a lot of power, a lot of God's justice, a lot of what is going to get Habakkuk to the place in chapter 3, verse 18, when he can say, I, I will wait for the Lord because there is this, this woe coming that he's promised me. You might, you might excuse me, remember that last week we saw chapter 2, verse 4. There's this majestic verse, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness, uh, or his faith, as the footnote tells us, that's Jesus' faithfulness on our behalf. Or we're, we're living, we're, we're waiting for him by faith. Whichever way you take it, it means the same thing. So that's the, that's the option for the godly person waiting. And then in our passage this week, we had, we had the whole of chapter 2 read, but we're going to focus on verses 5 to 20. We're going to say, if you're not going to wait by faith, then greed is really your other option. You see that in verse 5? Indeed, wine betrays him. He's arrogant and never at rest. He's talking about Babylon. Because Babylon is as greedy as the grave. And like death, he's never satisfied. He's guzzling. I want as much as I can get. Goods and people and nations and plunder and wine. He gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. So we can live by faith. That's the righteous response that's commended to Habakkuk. Where we say, I can wait for you, Lord. Even though this is... Awful, I can wait. Or we live by greed. I can't wait. I want whatever I can get now. And this week in particular, I think this is a one-off in the Bible. But um, as, as far as I can tell from looking it up in theology books, that's true. But um, let's, let's find out. Verse 6, this is why I say that. It's a one-off because verse 6, will not all of them taunt him? With ridicule and scorn. God is teaching his people how to taunt their enemies. What to say in the face of injustice. The idea of, of woe, W-O-E, that's not unique in the Bible. Um, there are five here in the passage and ten of the sixteen major or minor prophets in the Old Testament. They use this word woe quite a lot. Woe to you. And then they tend to list lots of crimes. So woe isn't unique in itself. But for God to Teach people to say woe. That's what God's doing here. And that's what's surprising. Hence the sermon title, How to Taunt Your Enemy. Now look, I want, I want to really define that carefully because 
Otherwise, we go home and say, oh, we learned how to taunt our enemies here at church this morning. And it doesn't sound quite right, does it? Um, in terms of taunting your enemy, that's not a sort of um, vindictive finger-pointing. You know, uh, let's say you're a sports fan and your team loses in the cup final. Uh, and um, it's, there's a lot of sour grapes as you're coming out of the stadium and the police are shepherding you towards the tube. You're mm, taunting your enemy because you've lost. Mm, calling them names and, and swear words might pour out of the football fans in this city. That's not the taunt he's talking about. That can't be right. But the sort of taunt he is talking about is the quiet utterance of one who believes that justice is coming. My friend's dad, is, uh, he's called a sheriff's officer in Scotland, which I understand is, is rather like a bailiff. And uh, he's, he's been a policeman for his whole career. He's hard as nails. And at the tail end of his career, he got this job as a, sh- a sheriff's officer. And it is his job to actually drive the length and breadth of the highlands because it's such a big jurisdiction. And he has to go and knock on people's doors who have got debts and they haven't paid. And when they open the door, it's his job to read out what he's got to take from them. So not really a fun job at all. But he's, he's well qualified for it after his career. And my, my friend tells me that in, in the face of lots of these people's reactions, which is shouting and screaming and how can you do this to me? It's his job just to read what the law says. So he, he calmly says, look, this is, what's, this is what you did wrong. This is your crime. This is what's going to happen to you. These are the penalties. And... It seems to me that that is the sort of taunt that God gives his people here. It's, it's something that they can say in the face of injustice and oppression. Now, obviously, it's not, it's not possible just to... Uh, I'm gonna, I, in, as, you, as you oppress me, bully boss or ISIS soldier, I'm going to calmly li- read you a list of what you've done wrong and, and uh, the penalties that are going to accrue. Uh, we, that's not how real life always works. But God is giving his people words to say possibly to their captors but possibly to each other and possibly just to ourselves so look with all that said how to taunt your enemy let's let's look at each of these five woes it's really the way we've got to do it just there's, there's five of them all in a row and then we'll draw it together at the end so first woe you will be plundered by the plundered nations verses six to eight Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your creditors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their prey. Because you have plundered many nations, the people who are left will plunder you, for you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. So you see that word woe starts off the whole thing as it will do. I mean, there's some worldly wisdom here, what we recognize from sort of stuff, lessons that you learn as life goes on. If you live by the sword, you die by the sword. It's that sort of thing at work here in this first woe. You reap what you sow. What goes around comes around. Habakkuk's reminding us, God's reminding us, that he set up the world in such a way that there's built-in justice. We went to see uh, Hamlet as a little uh, summer treat last week. And, I mean, there's, there's built-in justice in, the, in Hamlet, if you know it, or The Lion King, if you know 
that's basically based on Hamlet. You know, the, um, the happy ending at the Lion King I discovered was Hamlet, awful ending. But um, what happens, there's this king, um, seems to be a happy kingdom, and then his brother comes along and kills the king to get the throne and to get his wife in Hamlet. And there's, there's blood on his hands. And for a while, it seems like everything's going fine. He's going to get away with it. But the blood catches up with the new king. The, the, things have a way of evening themselves out. So by the end of the play, there's, there's blood all over the stage. There's dead bodies everywhere. He hasn't got away with it. What goes around comes around. You will be plundered by your plundered enemies. Babylon who are the nation Habakkuk had such a problem with. They conquered everyone. In, in 597 BC, they had the world at their feet. They were the superpower. Everyone was in their hands. But in 539 BC, that's 58 years later, they surrendered to, to Persia. These, this new superpower, Persia, just walked into their city and Babylon put their hands up. They didn't have the, the force to match them. So what goes around comes around. You will be plundered by the nations you plundered, Babylon. And living by faith means refusing to say wow to all the arrayed might and pomp and splendor of an enemy's army or as they flex their muscles and rather saying woe because God has built justice into this world and you won't get away with this. You'll be plundered by the plundered nations. Second woe. You'll be testified against by the stolen rafters. That sounds a bit strange, but look at verse 9. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You've plotted the ruin of many people, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out, and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. So here's a picture of a, a rich oppressor who's feathered their nest. You know, they've they built up the most incredible palace with the best luxuries and securities that the world can buy. I suppose if you had a stereotype of a, a, um, a looter in the, in the jungle, um, you, you might see their, their house covered with ivory tusks and tiger skin rugs. You know, they, they've, they've plundered what wasn't really theirs and they've feathered their nest with it. Perhaps in our day and age it might mean the businessman or businesswoman who so squeezes the workforce that's under them, so little regard for their juniors, they're all they're interested in is building their own empire, that they can cream off anything extra for themselves and they live in that kind of luxury. But the woe here says, even if no one catches up with you in this life, even if the first woe doesn't seem to be coming true for you, the bricks of your house know the truth. God saw everything that was done in secret. Jesus uses a similar phrase in the New Testament when he's talking about his own identity. He's coming into Jerusalem and he says, look, even if no one else knew the truth about me, the stones would cry out because the truth will out. And God sees everything that was done in secret. You'll be testified against by the stolen rafters. Third woe. Verses 12 to 14. You'll be outdone by a greater empire. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You know, our legacy might be a great 
town that we've helped to build or uh, an empire of some sort or a, a great family. This warning is saying, if that's built on blood, if that's built on moral evil, then what good is it really? Picture it this way. If, suppose Hitler had won. Suppose the Third Reich succeeded in dominating all of Europe and maybe even further afield and there was this incredible empire which, which stretched across the first world. Would that be impressive? Would that be an empire that everyone looked to and thought, wow. I think the conquered peoples of the nations would have still known that was built on bloodshed and evil. Contrast that with verse 14, which is what the Lord says is going to happen. This is really not worldly wisdom anymore. This is the Lord making a promise. Verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God's empire will be very great and it won't be built on any moral evil or filth. Rather, it's, it's the knowledge of the glory of the Lord here. Habakkuk's picking up a promise that Isaiah actually makes about 100 years beforehand in Isaiah chapter 11. And he uses it again. And he says, let me just remind you of this, oppressed people. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord is what will fill the earth. Not any of these empires that you might be tempted to be in awe of. I came across an example recently of, of um, a guy called Polycarp. And Polycarp was a bishop in the very early centuries of the church. <clears throat> he was an aging man, getting towards the end of his life and his ministry. And the, the, the tide of oppression against Christians was turning against them. And in, in a town that he was bishop of, a place called Smyrna, the mob came for him. He's the bishop, he's the one in charge of this church, let's go and get him. So they came for him one day. And they came to his house and, and he'd, he'd read the signs coming for a long time. So apparently he knew what was going to happen. They would come from him eventually. As they came and they bashed on the door and they said, come out, we want you. Ready to put him to death. Do you know what he did? Opened the door and he said, I understand you're here for me. That's okay, I'll come. Can I get you some food first? Can you believe that? The mob that was going to drag him off and put him to death, they eventually burned him at the stake. He said, can I feed you first? I, I think you might need a good meal. Apparently when he fed them and he'd given them a meal, uh, he said, would you mind if I prayed? And he, he prayed aloud for, for two hours, the story goes. <laughs> Possibly taking some liberties. But, but, uh, but they let him do it. He prayed aloud for two hours. And I bet you, we don't have a record of his words, but I bet you this justice of God was on his lips. Lord, he could have prayed, I understand that this, this flood of your grace is going to fill the earth. It's going to be greater than any mob rule or any empire that rules at the moment. I trust you with justice. And I can bear to be gracious to these people. As we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, we're reminded that there is a tide of God's judgment coming on the world. But before that, there's a flood of his grace. Because we can trust Jesus Christ. That's what Polycarp understood. So that's the third woe. Let's look at the fourth one. Shamed like you shamed others, verses 15 to 17. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it's your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming round to you and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and your destruction of animals will terrify you 
for you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. You'll be shamed like you shamed others. Apparently the, the Babylonians had a practice of shaming their enemies so that when they'd conquered a land, they'd get them drunk, but not because they just wanted to have a nice party with them. They'd get them drunk and then they'd sort of tear off their clothes and laugh at them in public. They'd, they'd shame them with nakedness. And then they'd often take them away into exile. So this is less about drink and wine, this, although God has got things to say about drunkenness. And it's more about shaming. We know that another thing the Babylonians did was they'd, they'd go and deforest a whole area. So they went up to Lebanon, where it was famous for its trees, the cedars of Lebanon, often used in the Bible as a, a picture of strength and beauty, and they'd build the temple of the Lord out of it. And the Babylonians would go and they'd, they'd chop them all down, and they'd take them away to Babylon, hundreds and hundreds of miles, and then they'd build their palaces out of them. So they'd leave the land naked. Then they'd go to the cities and they'd take the people away into exile and they'd leave the cities naked. So God is saying, what you've done, the way you've treated this people and this land, that will come back to you. You'll be shamed by that. In particular, there is a promise here from God. You see where he talks about the cup. The cup, verse 16, from the Lord's right hand is coming round to you. The cup that Jesus drank, let's use this cup. The cup that Jesus drank at the the Last Supper, and he passed around to his friends. He said, this cup is my blood of the new covenant. He goes to Gethsemane, and he says, Father, I'll drink the cup of your wrath instead of my friends. God is making a promise here that the, the cup will come round to Babylon. They'll, they'll drink the poisoned cup of God's anger. You'll be shamed like you shamed others. We needn't say wow to an empire like that, but we could say woe instead. Fifthly, finally, you'll be silenced like your silent idols, verses 18 to 20. Of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman or an image that teaches lies? For the one who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life. What a lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver and there is no breath in it. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. This is supposed to be sort of Old Testament comedy or at least biting satire, you know. There's there's a a great irony here as uh, somebody takes a hammer and a chisel to stone and they try and shape it into an idol and then says, up you get, tell me what to do. You're my God now. And Habakkuk points out, look, that thing can't teach. That thing can't tell you what to do. Earlier in the summer, I visited a Hindu temple. I was on a sort of tour and it was fascinating to go around and as always with these things, if if you meet the people from another religion, it is amazing. Um, just to sort of talk to them face to face and takes down a lot of preconceptions. As the, the Hindu priests were showing us around, I did find it really sad that in this ordinary room in um, West London, there were plastic statues of, of uh, colourful gods. And in would come the, the local Hindu people and they'd bow down towards it and they'd give a pint of milk or a banana and they'd set it in front of the plastic statue. And they bow down to it. 
And I went away sad, thinking, how can they do that towards a plastic statue? And then I realized, am I not guilty of the same thing, just in a perhaps a more Western way, a more subtle way? To take one example, in in a culture that's, that's driven by erotic desire, you know, my sex drive would rule a lot of people. In a culture like that, where, where we would often do anything to, to, to have the person that we want and have them return our sexual advances, well, once, once they have, our culture would often tire of them, wouldn't it? And we'd effectively say to our sex drive, okay, what next? Teach me. I mean, show me where to go. You're, you're my God. I'll, I'll effectively bow down to you. Tell me what to do. We could choose other examples too. Do you know this woe is a bit different? Do you notice that? The woe doesn't come straight away like the other ones have. So verse 18, he starts off talking about idols and then we get to the woe in verse 19. I wonder if that isn't because this is most applicable to us in London where things are just a bit more subtle and the idolatry is just a bit more, a bit less in your face straight away but nonetheless true. You know, if we persist, you and I, in worshipping things that aren't God, he will in the end pronounce a woe on us. In particular, this is the way the Lord finishes. Verse 20. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Be silent before the Lord. And that's it. That's the end. I mean, the Lord doesn't say anything else in Habakkuk. That's it. So in chapter 3, Habakkuk is talking and he's singing and he's writing a song. But this is where the Lord signs off. I'm in my temple. You can be silent before me. Or hush. The he- apparently the Hebrew word is has, which, which sounds a lot like hush, doesn't it? Hush. Shh. I take it that that sound is actually quite similar in most languages. Shh. Hush. So the Lord says, hush now. That's enough talking about this. I've told you what's going to happen. So supposing you're watching a, a fight, like you're watching the Olympic boxing or judo or taekwondo or something, and someone strikes the winning blow. You know, the, 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 the well, it's not the killer blow in the Olympics, is it? But, you know, it's something more civilized than that. They, they strike the winning blow, and the, the opponent falls over. And often, if it's a really incredible blow that no one was expecting, the crowd just goes quiet for a second, don't they? And then the whole thing erupts into praise and they're cheering and, and, and crying for their champion. Well, that's what the Lord is saying here. Look, look, be silent before me because I will have the victory. That woe will happen and the earth will be silent before me. So look, Habakkuk is told to wait, to wait for God's justice. And for a Christian, that's, that's colored in even more because we're waiting for the Lord Jesus to come again. We're waiting for his second coming. Do you notice in Revelation chapter 8, which was the other reading that we had, there is silence in heaven for half an hour. I think it very likely that the, the Apostle John, when he was writing that, was thinking of Habakkuk chapter 2, that the Lord is in his holy temple, let the whole earth be silent before him. And when Jesus is given that final judgment, there will be silence. For Habakkuk, he's stopped demanding that there's justice now, and rather he's, he's joining in the stunned silence of the whole world. So we might hush. Just three other applications as we close. 
I mean, if you're, if you're suffering now, if you're oppressed now, if you're on the receiving end of some species of what Habakkuk's talking about, then really this whole book is for you, this whole sermon is for you. But perhaps, perhaps that's not quite us this morning. So if you're a bully now, I mean, if you are the oppressor, if God has brought you here this morning to, to tell you what you've been doing, then he's also here to say it will catch up with you. He is pronouncing a woe on that sort of behavior. If you're one of the millions, on the other hand, who are watching the TV news or online news, and there's this nightly catalog of injustice as you see things that are happening in Nigeria and in the Middle East and elsewhere, then, then how about, now this might sound weird, but how about we actually get in the habit of saying woe? I mean, I'm actually talking about the moment when you're watching your TV or your laptop and you see this tragedy unfolding in front of you and we get in the habit of saying, whoa, I mean, even if it's just under our breath, woe to you. You who have done this, woe to you because I know what's going to happen to you if you don't repent and come to Christ. One commentator calls Habakkuk chapter 2 a litany for the oppressed, by which he means it's set prayers for oppressed people. So we might get in the habit of uttering the set prayers when we need to. And uh, we might perhaps recommit to evangelism rather than extortion this morning. Evangelism, because that's how the kingdom of God spreads. That's what Habakkuk is doing in verse 14 when he says the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's not force, it's, it's knowledge. Earlier in the summer, uh, I, I was, had a, a business dealing. This is nothing to do with Christchurch Mayfair, by the way, caveat. Uh, I, I was on a, a summer camp and we had to do business with an incredibly obnoxious individual who represented another organization. And I was finding it super difficult. I, just a uh, horrible working relationship ensued because of the way this person was using their seniority and being unfair and I got second opinions and it did seem to be unfair. Anyway, I was telling a friend about this and having a good whinge. And, and he said, look, why don't we pray about this? And as my friend prayed for that individual, he prayed for them to be converted and to come to Christ. And you know that did me the world of good. Because as he prayed that they would find grace and find the knowledge of the glory of the Lord in the face of everything they deserved, I remembered what Jesus Christ is all about. But in the meantime, we might hush. Sometimes we're not given the opportunity to say anything. To an oppressor, to a suffering colleague or family member, we might not be able to say anything. But what we might do is mentally rehearse the litany of the oppressed. And we might know that we're quiet because we're waiting for God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, our Lord Jesus Christ, we are indeed waiting for you. And while we cannot fathom all the pain in the world and all the things that our brothers and sisters and our city is going through, we are waiting for you. And we join in all your people down the ages as their prayers rise like incense and we say we are waiting. In Jesus' name, amen.